It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. My guests for this episode are two incredible women and mothers, Heidi Wukovitz and Alicia Stillman. Both of their lives were turned upside down by meningitis, but they went on to join forces and create the Meningitis B Action Project to help educate the world on the dangers and the fast-acting nature of meningitis. Hey, Patty and Alicia. Thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Hi, John. Thank you for having us. Well, we're here to talk about meningitis, and both you, Patty, and Alicia know a lot about meningitis. Um, I do too, but I feel like you guys have a much better depth of knowledge and and quite some stories to share. My daughter, Kimberly, was a 17-year-old high school senior in New York in her last week of high school, looking forward to prom, looking forward to graduation and looking forward to starting her nursing education. Kimberly's dream was to become a pediatric nurse. And she was enrolled at a college for nursing on Long Island and she was going to commute. But Kimberly came home from school one day. Actually, I wanna tell you a little bit about Kimberly. She was a, a really silly, full of life, vibrant, forced to reckon with. She was an amazing person. I was very proud of her. She was a really good kid. She was a really good friend. She was a great cousin and a great, you know, grandchild. Everybody loved Kim. When she would come into the room, she would make a statement, you know, she'd come sliding in or she'd come singing or dancing. She, you would know she was in the room. She was just, as I said, really full of life. So Kimberly was um, came home from school one afternoon, and she complained of body aches and a fever. She had a fever of 101. I gave her Motrin, and she was perfectly fine. She was doing her normal antics the rest of the day. She was singing. She was skipping around the house. She was just her normal self. When we went to bed that night, now, she it was just Kimberly and I living at home. When we went to bed that night, Something just told me to sleep in her bed with her. So I did. Um, She was fine throughout the night. But the next morning when we woke up, boy, was she sick. She said, Mommy, I I, I can't even lift my head off the pillow. There's something really, really wrong with me. I need you to take me to the emergency room. And I was just so shocked because really what 17-year-old is begging their parent to take them to the emergency room? You know, this had to be really bad. She, and she could not lift her head off the pillow. She could not really open her eyes. She just And she said, Mommy, everything hurts me from my eyelashes down to my toes. This is really, really bad. And then she said something which really struck me. And she said, Mommy, I feel like my ankles are bleeding. So I pulled back the sheets and I saw a few purple dots on one of her ankles, which were petechiae. Being a registered nurse, I knew something something was going on in her blood. And I rushed her to the emergency room. And during the time that I got her in the car, got her to the emergency room, these tiny purple dots had now spread into a purple rash and they had traveled up her legs and her legs were actually purple and she was in significant pain. When I got Kim into the emergency room, the doctors knew exactly what was wrong with her. 
they drew blood cultures, they gave her IV antibiotics and put her in an isolation room. And they were asking she and I a lot of questions. Tim, where were you this weekend? Who were you with? What were you doing? And she was able to tell them, I was at a concert this past weekend. Um, I took a, a crowded Long Island, you know, I took a, tr a train to uh, New York City to see a concert outside. I was at my best friend's birthday party next door. So she was able to verbalize all of this. But again, she really was very uncomfortable. And then the doctor pulled me outside of the room and she said, you know, mom, we suspect that your daughter has bacterial meningitis and that it has actually infected her blood. And that's why we're seeing this purplish rash. And I just was so taken back because I told the doctor, there's no way Kimberly could possibly have bacterial meningitis because she was vaccinated with the meningitis vaccine. I made sure she received the vaccine at 11 and she got the booster dose at 16. So how could she possibly have bacterial meningitis? I told her perhaps it's something else. And that's when the doctor explained to me that the vaccine that Kimberly received at 11 and the booster dose at 16 only protected her against serogroups A, C, W, and Y of meningococcal meningitis, and that they suspect Kimberly has serogroup B, also known as meningitis B. But we wouldn't know those results of the blood cultures for about 48 hours. So they proceeded to treat her as, as you know, meningococcal meningitis, and things went downhill very, very quickly. Kimberly was rushed up to the pediatric intensive care unit um, because she was still 17. She was six weeks short of turning 18, and they took excellent care of her. They, they did everything properly and aggressively, you know, by treating her, and despite all of that, you know, this bacteria had infected her blood, and Kimberly became septic. She was in multi-organ failure and she was in septic shock. She was never able to urinate again. She went into cardiac arrest. She was resuscitated. Um, that happened, the uh, cardiac arrest happened actually on the second or third day of being in the intensive care unit. And then at that point she was put on life support. She was put on a ventilator. But the doctors explained to me that she did have significant brain activity, and we had hope that she would, you know, turn the corner and really pull through because of this significant brain activity. And at this point, she was already, her limbs were turning bright purple from lack of oxygenation to her limbs because she was in multi-organ failure. And then they turned black. And they did explain to me that should Kim survive this, she will likely be a quadruple amputee. But we were, you know, we were prepared to take her home like this. And um, as it turned out, a few days later, it was determined that she also was losing oxygen to her brain and she had impending brain herniation. And we had to make the most difficult decision of our lives. And um, I had to remove my, my otherwise healthy 17-year-old daughter from life support. And I, and I buried Kim in her prom dress because it was hanging on her closet door. She was all ready to go to prom, graduation, and nursing school. So that's, that's what we did. And then, you know, the vaccine for meningitis B became available two years after Kimberly died. And that's when I established the Kimberly Coffee Foundation. So that I, I make sure that parents know about the vaccine available to help protect against meningitis B in addition to the other meningitis vaccine that more people are familiar with. And that vaccine protects against zero ACWNY. Wow. That is a, uh, that's an incredible story, Patty. 
was kind of trying to keep track there. What was the time frame from being at home and, and how long was she in the hospital? Was it three or four days? She was actually in the hospital for nine days. Uh, the time frame from the onset of her symptoms was about one o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. And I brought her to the emergency room within 18 hours of her first symptom. You know, we slept that night. So mm-hmm. within that time frame, you know, we slept. And she was pretty much treated right away. She was treated right away. They knew what she had. You know, many stories you'll hear of people that have had bacterial meningitis and that have survived. You know, they may not get to the emergency room right away. They may be, you know, they may think that they have a hangover. They may think, you know, that these flu-like symptoms, which is what Kim had, body aches and a temperature of 101, they may think that they, you know, they have the flu. They may not go to the emergency room. And yet sometimes those people, you know, will survive. So there's really no rhyme or reason as to why Kimberly, you know, didn't survive this. It's just unfortunate with this disease that it's so aggressive. Yeah, I'm one of those people I think you're referring to. I was Yeah. Uh, I was by myself in in college in an apartment and from the the moment I started getting my in air quotes flu-like symptoms it was probably about 24 hours before I actually closer to probably 30 hours before I got to the hospital. So right. the meningitis never got into my my bloodstream. Yeah, I it's so strange how uh we've we've talked to many people on the podcast and I've talked to many many other meningitis pe- people affected by meningitis and although lots of the onset is similar, it kind of varies quite a bit from there in how fast things are treated or how how slow they're treated and then right. the um the results are oftentimes pretty pretty dramatically different too. Right. The outcome, the outcome can be very different and somebody can have, you know, one symptom, somebody can have multiple symptoms. It's just, it's, it's really, you know, a very scary, aggressive and horrific disease. So Patty, no matter how many times we share our stories together, it's heartbreaking. It it is heartbreaking to, to share our stories and to hear each other's stories. So I can only imagine what the listeners are thinking now. And my story is heartbreakingly similar to yours in so many ways, but yet different in others. And I think that's why we do so well with each other when we share our stories together, because we point out the similarities and yet the differences so that any listeners can have the benefit of knowing any any way it could present and, and any any outcomes that could be there. My daughter, Emily, was a 19-year-old college sophomore. Um, similar to you, John, um, she was in, in college. She was living in a dormitory environment, and she had um, a headache, a simple headache. She called home one night, and she said to me, that she had a headache and I suggested she take Motrin. I thought that she possibly could be getting the flu. She reassured me that she had been up all night studying the night before and she thought more likely than the flu um, was that overtired feeling that she gets where she would get a body ache and just 
you know, so tired that she just wanted to stay in bed. And we decided she'd talk in the morning. And for Emily, the morning never came because she went to sleep about 10 o'clock and she woke up a few hours later and said to her roommates, my head really hurts and I think I should go to the hospital. And they took her to the hospital, not by ambulance. She, she walked in. She walked in with her backpack and an iPad and her computer. And I think there was a textbook. And she was going because she had a headache. She wasn't going to die. And because she presented with a migraine, what they thought was a migraine, they treated her for a migraine. And didn't begin to suspect anything else was going on until for several hours. And as the hours turned of late night turned into early morning and she was more confused and even slightly combative, they began to suspect maybe more was going on. And that is um, where meningitis first came up. I was not contacted. Emily was 19. I was two and a half hours away. I wasn't called until the next morning. And the next morning when the school called me um, with the hospital, they told me my daughter had been admitted during the night and she had been diagnosed with bacterial meningitis. And I remember saying at that time, I remember saying my daughter cannot have bacterial meningitis. My daughter was vaccinated for bacterial meningitis. In fact, I remembered that Emily's year, the recommendation for the meningitis vaccine had changed. The meningitis vaccine called the quadrivalent vaccine or the conjugate vaccine, which protects against serogroups A, C, W, and Y, before Emily's year had been given just at age 11. Emily's year it changed to add a booster dose before college at 16. And I remembered that she had had that, that booster dose. So I remember saying, it, she can't have it. And they said, well, just get here as quickly as possible. She's quite sick. When I got to the hospital, they asked me if I wanted them to call clergy. And I think that was the first time I really realized how serious this was. My husband had been out of town. My older daughter was doing a semester abroad. And uh, she was in South America. My son, my younger son was still in high school. And I just remember feeling so alone and not knowing what was going to be. They did a craniotomy because they said that if Emily were to survive, her brain damage would be so severe because the swelling was so severe that it wasn't allowing any blood to reach her brain. She survived the craniotomy, but she never, the swelling never went down and she never woke up. Emily was a, she had an infectious laugh. She had a gigantic smile. She smiled with her whole face. Her eyes lit up. Like the corners of her mouth didn't just turn up when she smiled. She just smiled with her whole face. And I never saw that again. I never heard her talk again. She was declared brain dead the next morning. 
Uh, with Emily, the infection stayed only in her brain and in her spinal cord. It never transferred through her blood to her organs like it did with Kimberly's. So for Emily, her organs were all intact. And I was able to donate six of Emily's organs to five other people to save lives. I made Emily become a hero. And that was something that was really special for us. When I said goodbye to my daughter, she had tubes everywhere coming out of all parts of her body. And I said to her, you go, you, you be at peace. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out. I had no medical background, uh, but I got to figure this out. I have to know how this could happen because I have to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. I'll be your voice. And I said goodbye. And shortly after she died, I created the Emily Stillman Foundation. We, we raise awareness for meningitis, in particular, serogroup B, but we talk about all forms of meningococcal disease and all the vaccines that are available to um, prevent the disease. We talk about the public health issues surrounding the disease. We also talk a lot about organ and tissue donation that has become a very integral part of our foundation. And in 2017, Patty and I, who had previously become friends, we met through this horrible, horrible commonality that we now shared. And we combined um, forces because we believed that to tell our stories together, um, there would be power in numbers. And I, 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 without always patting myself on the back, I must say we do a good job at that, Patty, and I work well together. And with the Meningitis B Action Project, we reach people not just across the country, but across the world. Our resources are hanging in hospitals, universities, medical centers, community centers all over the world. And we're really proud of our work. Yes, we, we do. We do work so well together, Alicia and I, and we have become really very good friends. <laughs> we, we get it. You know, we understand what the other is going through. I could just text her one word and she knows, she yeah. knows how I'm feeling. She gets it. You know, there's not many, there is nobody else I can do that with. So it's, it's a special bond that we share. I wish we never met. You know, I've told you that before. I wish we never <laughs> met un under these circumstances. Um, but at the same time, I'm very grateful that we did. Yeah, and we do. Yeah, we, you know, we, we, we laugh, we cry, we, we talk about our girls all the time. And we talk about this vision that we have of the two of them. You know, if we're doing something that, you know, we think, oh boy, what are they thinking now? You know, we, we envision the two of them sitting on a little brick wall, looking down, uh, swinging their legs and like hitting the other and, and saying, would you look at what they're doing now? Look at that. Ma, why are you wearing those shoes? Or, you know, I can't believe she said that. Or what are you, what are you two up to now? Because we got ourselves in some uh, pretty silly situations. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a little Lucy and Ethel going on, but um, yeah. we, you know, we, we envision the two of them really 
getting a kick out of what we're doing. And we know they're really proud of what we're doing. It's very important what we're doing. Um, and we reach so many people. And it's really our girls. And, and you know, Kimberly wanted to be a pediatric nurse and she wanted to save children's lives. Being a nurse myself, I'm, I'm able to share her story. I am able to be Kimberly's voice. And I think that's really a cool thing because I'm she, she's really doing the work, but it's just through me. Another thing that we do through the Kimberly Coffee Foundation, because Kimberly wanted to be a pediatric nurse, is that we offer a nursing scholarship to any New York State high school senior who is pursuing a nursing education. And through that, Kimberly's legacy lives on as well. Yeah, that's really some amazing work that uh, you guys and your your families are are doing in their names. That's pretty amazing. The literature you spoke about earlier that's it's in doctor's offices and college campuses and things. What is the like the number one thing that you want to tell people or, or to, to look for? What what's the most important message that you try to convey? The most important message is to be educated. Education and knowledge is power. So if a healthcare provider for example, doesn't bring up the fact that there is now this meningitis B vaccine, when we give parents the knowledge and the education, they then can bring it up if their healthcare provider does not. So the most important message I would say is to be educated. And through the Meningitis B Action Project, which is a joint initiative of the Kimberly Coffee Foundation and the Emily Stillman Foundation, that's what we do. And that has become the educational arm of both of our foundations where we have so many resources. You know, we have posters, we have videos, we have um, brochures that are tailored towards parents and towards young adults. All of our resources are translated into Spanish. We have, um, as Alicia mentioned, our resources at our many, many um, medical facilities across the country. I had Andy Marceau on the podcast about six months ago or so for uh, World Meningitis Day in 2022. And we he shared his story. I, I think you guys know Andy. Sure. And um, yeah. one of the things that I thought was interesting that he said was he was in college as well, living in a dormitory on campus. And he said, you know, there was a bulletin board in the lobby that had a bunch of things on it, flyers for just different things and medical stuff. He said, one of them was about meningitis. He said, oh. I walked by that thing, you know, I don't know how many times and never paid any attention to it. And of course, and that, I mean, I, I could say the same thing about me too. Uh, I, I can't point to something that I didn't look at necessarily, but you know, I didn't know meningitis existed until right. I was told that I had it. And uh, I, I predate all of the vaccines, but I, I don't know what about my situation would have told my roommates or something meningitis because I didn't have any of the, the telltale signs, I guess, other than being unconscious, which is pro probably not a good one, but but I was I was alone for that. So there wasn't anybody to really to see that initially. But I think right. education is is very critical too for uh, I think I think there's healthcare professionals and and nurses and people that maybe it's so far down the list of things they they consider that um, that can be dangerous that it's not it's, it's not thought of sooner. Right, and it is it's very important that um, emergency room healthcare providers know about meningococcal meningitis 
because they are on the front line and they're the ones who are going to see this first and need to, you know, diagnose this quickly and treat it aggressively. And college health centers. Many times kids are sent home from college health centers. Right. What, what uh, at my college, we called it the quack shack, which was the kind of the <laughs> on-campus <laughs> facility, I guess. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yep. Yeah. 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 You know, one of my favorite resources um, when we we work with many colleges and one of my favorite resources in a college setting is magnets that we have that go on every dorm room refrigerator that show symptoms because so many of these symptoms are interchangeable with a hangover or with the flu and or like with even my Emily with you know, just being overtired from studying too hard. And, um, and it lists all the different, it, it lists all of the different symptoms so that somebody might say, God, maybe it isn't that. Could it be this? And just question it. It's the little things that can really make a big difference. And that's what we're, that's really our aim. And it's really important when Alicia and I tell um, our girls stories because Meningococcal meningitis can present in one of two ways. It can present as meningitis, which is the inflammation and infection of the membrane that lines the brain and spinal cord. And that was the case with Emily. In the case with Kimberly, the other way that it can present is as a blood infection. Same bacteria, same disease, but it presented differently. Yeah, we kind of talked about that earlier about how some of the symptoms can start the same, but the variations mm-hmm. from there on are can be quite dramatic. And I think I would be like Emily in this case because mine was pretty much um, or was in my brain and spinal cavity, which is, as mm-hmm. you were describing um, Emily's condition, it reminded me of me because that that is what happened with me in my brain. There was some swelling mm-hmm. and that's what cut off the... Um, circulation to the optic nerves, which is what the, da- the damage occurred to my, to my sight. Well, John, let's clarify. It all does start with it because that look, meningitis is an infection of the meningi. So it all does start with that brain infection. It's just, where does it go from there? And that's the, the meningi is the, the lining of the, the sp- spinal cavity in the, in the brain. Correct. Area. Yeah. Correct. And do we know where meningitis comes from? It's is it airborne? Is it so we know that the bacteria that causes this particular these infections for meningococcal disease is a bacterium called Neisseria meningitis. That particular bacteria is actually very common, and many of us just are carriers and carry it in the back of our throat or in our our nasal pharynx, and it's harmless. And it just passes, or it may come again and then pass. And why all of a sudden one person, you know, develops invasive disease, that we don't know. You know, there's a lot of different theories, you know, I guess it's like winning the lottery, um, why that one person develops invasive disease. They say that there are triggers, there are some things that make a person more vulnerable, but um, nothing really particularly definitive. Yeah, so it can right. strike almost anybody at any time. Yes, that's correct. Meningococcal meningitis can strike just about anybody at any time 
um, and the most vulnerable ages are 16 to 23. We also know that in particular with meningitis B, that college students are five times more likely to contract meningitis B than non-college students. But that certainly does not mean that we don't vaccinate um, young adults that are not going to college. We know that so many of them don't and they need to be just as protected. It's also important to remember that my daughter Kimberly was a high school senior living at home with me. She was not in a dormitory situation. In either of your cases, were there any other people infected with meningitis? No. No. Yeah, Just that one the, single cases. Yeah. Yeah, that was the case for me also. Mm-hmm. And there's not any distinction. It's so the, the Sarah groups are A, C, W, Y, and B. And without doing, um, without testing for that, there's nothing that would indicate which one somebody has, right? Correct. And they all kind of have the same. They have the same outcome. They have this, they act the same. Yeah. Do, do you know when the vaccines became available? For meningitis B? Yeah. Yes, in 2014, two years after Kimberly died in 2012, is when the meningitis B vaccines became available. Do you know when the ACWY one became available? 2005, Alicia? Yeah, four or five, it became available, and they were using it just at age 11. And Mm. then in 2011, they started to, they increased, they increased the recommendation, you know, to the, include the booster dose also. And in your experience, have you seen, um, I, I think there, there obviously is more awareness today than there, than there has been before, particularly with the kind of stuff you guys are doing and some other organizations that I know you guys have, have worked with and continue to work with is, um, like I have kids that are in young, young children in elementary and there are meningitis vaccines on our our vaccination lists, and at least in Texas, where I am, have you seen an increase of that where where you guys are as well? An increase in what knowledge about the vaccines? Yeah, the vaccines, or maybe even some mandates. I know there's some organizations that have done work for mandates in certain states for for college age students, or maybe certain other ages. Is that the kind of stuff that you so, guys? Yeah, try? yeah. So Patty probably can speak to to that. Patty's done some wonderful work in New York. Yeah. So in New York, um, I did work on the New York Statement in Chicago bill, which does now require, as of 2016, all 7th to 12th graders to be vaccinated against meningococcal meningitis. That vaccine mandate is for the men ACWY vaccine. The mandate does not include the meningitis B vaccine. So what happens is, you know, it's wonderful that all of these kids need to be vaccinated, but it's also giving parents a false sense of security because those kids are just as protected as Kimberly was and as Emily was. So they are not protected against meningitis B unless, of course, they did receive the vaccine for meningitis B. But if, if their you know, parents are strictly getting their children vaccinated based on the mandate in New York State, their children will only be protected against serogroups A, C, W, and Y. So it's so important that they know about the meningitis B vaccine so they can have the conversation. You know, meningitis B vaccination has a recommendation from the ACIP who makes all the vaccine recommendations for the United States. And the recommendation is shared clinical decision-making. So again, the importance of having that shared discussion with the healthcare provider that really falls upon the healthcare provider's responsibility to start the conversation. 
And if perhaps they don't have the conversation, now parents and young adults will know about meningitis B through the work that we're doing, through the work that other organizations are doing as well. So it's all about education. Yeah, and you guys are definitely doing that. That is that's amazing. Do you do you know why the the meningitis B is not mandate? Is there something unique about it or is it just a timing thing? You know, that's a really loaded question, John. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you really, do you know that um, I am 59 years old? I will tell you. I did not know that. I and know that. I went back. To I thought school. it was like 26 or 27. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to school after Emily died because my background, I had an MBA and I, I work in accounting. I, I needed to have a, a better grasp of this whole public health thing. And I went back to school and got another master's in public health. And what I learned is, God, public health is so wonderful. And, oh, God, public health really sucks. <laughs> so the thing is, is public health is the health for the majority. It's how to keep the most amount of people healthy for the least amount of money. But mm -hmm. the dollar value that you would put on your child's life may not be the same dollar value that they are going to put on your child's life when they do a cost and benefit analysis to determine if the vaccine is cost effective. Mm -hmm. So what does it cost if one kid dies? You know, I don't know. Would that kid have grown up to discover the secrets of the universe? Maybe it would cost more. Maybe my daughter would have just been, her dream was to be a comedian on Saturday night live. Maybe her, maybe that's not a high value item. I don't know. It wasn't worth it to vaccinate her. So it's really sad. It's really sad. It's disheartening. Yeah. It's it really, really disheartening. Is. You know, there is a low incidence of the disease, but when it hits, as you know, yourself or your family, those numbers go right out the window. Yeah. Yeah. You so can ask let's anybody just, that has been affected of by course, it, that, of uh, course. It hits hard, it hits fast, and it, and it hits deep. And, and it, yeah. It's, and John, it's you're affected. Disease. And you're affected for the rest of your life. Yes. And Alicia and I are both mothers who are affected, and our families are affected yeah. for the rest of, of their lives. Yep. There's, there's a lot of ripple effects yes. that, um, yeah. that, that, and that, you know, it, it perpetuates on and on. Yeah, it does. It really does. And we can all, you know, we're all on this podcast together to promote awareness. And I'm really proud to be here because it's, it's, it's what we feel we need to do. And we are, we are making a difference. Our daughters are making a difference. John, you are making a difference. Well, I hope that I can at some point. And I think mm -hmm. kind of maybe to summarize that answer that you gave there, Alicia, that, that nobody's going to take better care of you than you. And mm -hmm. nobody's going to take better care of you, of you than your family or your, no, nobody's going to take better care of your family than you, I should say. But it can be a daunting task as a parent myself. I mean, where, mm -hmm. do, you, where do you draw the lines? You know, what, what do you, how much time do you spend on trying to be up on all these different types of things. Let's, you know, all the vaccines and things that are available. Let's, 
It's not worth forget about the internet and all the craziness well, that happens. And, and, and you know, life. let me step in and, and say one, one other thing that is very concerning to me from a public health standpoint, and that is to your point, some people are able to gather that knowledge and some people are not. Mm -hmm. And from a public health perspective where we live in a world where we, the world, everybody is entitled to the same thing. And, and I deserve to, to get the same knowledge you get to, to take care of our children. And that's not happening with this vaccine. So some people know about it and some people don't. And that's not equitable. And I have a real, real problem with that. And as a result, we're losing people. We're losing people and we're gaining other people that are affected as survivors for the rest of their lives. Yes. And it doesn't have to be that way. Okay. I don't have any other loaded questions, ladies. Um, so I don't, I don't want to get too many uh, feathers ruffled here or anything, but I certainly appreciate the time. I really, it's, it's, been, it's been great meeting you and I, I really have a great amount of respect for the, for the advocacy work that you're doing and, um, really empathize with your, your situation. And, and, um, I hope the best, and there's gotta be a way to help support. There's gotta be some of the people out there that want help support. So where's the best place for people to, uh, to reach out to you guys? They can find us at the, uh, meningitis, org, or at our individual foundations, um, the Kimberly coffee foundation in New York and the Emily Stillman foundation in Michigan. And we'll have those linked down in the show notes as well. So those are clickable. Just look down or scroll down and see those. And you guys have uh, some great information on those websites. Um, yes. And you're probably always looking for support. Yes, we're always looking for advocates to help promote awareness. Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, ladies. Thank you, John. Thank you for having us, John. Have a great day. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.